Right, um, my name is Martin Yelling, Dr. Martin Yelling. I very rarely say that, but I'm afraid it's true. Um, and I'm going to be hosting uh, this evening for you. I hope you're going to have a fantastic evening that's going to fill you with the joys of running. Uh, you can go away with some fantastic stories and experiences and perhaps a few things to help you with your own running. We've got a fantastic uh, series of speakers that I'm going to bring out uh, in a moment. Um, Marathon Talk, the podcast I do, it's out every Wednesday. It's good fun. I do it with Holly Rush and Tom Williams. Tom, for any of you who Park Run is the COO of, of, of Park Run. Um, it's great to have you here tonight at, at this science and running event at the Science Museum. I think it's the first one of these that the Science Museum have done. So we're getting there as runners. We're getting there. Um, Okay, let's just gauge. I, I'd like to gauge who I've got with me this evening. I'd like you to tell me if you consider yourself to be a runner. It's always a question I ask. Brilliant. Okay, so we've got a room full of runners. That's, that puts me at ease. Put your hand up if you've run or are training for a marathon. Great. Keep it up. If you've finished two or more marathons, five or more, ten or more, no looking around now, all those people that have done, <laughs> that have done ten. Uh, we'll stop at ten, shall we? Right, great. We'll stop at ten. Um, I'm going to bring our speakers in now. Um, we're f it's fantastic that we've got uh, wonderful speakers with us. I'll do a little intro and, and, and we'll get them in. Um, Dr. Jessica Bruce. Hopefully they're coming in now. Uh, Dr. Jessica Bruce is a biomechanical engineer. She's the, the, the director and founder of Run3D. That's a spin-out from Oxford University. They offer advanced performance analysis to athletes. They use infrared technology and 3D gait analysis. They've helped Joe Cady. Uh, Dr. Josie Perry. Here's Josie in the amazing blue dress. Sports psychologist, director of London-based clinic performance in mind. If you listen to Marathon Talk, we've had Josie on loads, and she's fantastic at helping you how to understand, to tune in to your uh, mental state in and before a marathon. Richard Robinson is an expert in wearable tech from Garmin. Garmin are one of the world's leading developers of wearable technology. Chances are, those of you in the audience who own a Garmin, if you're anything like me, you use it to stop you going off like a lunatic in, in, a, in a marathon and just checking in on your pace. Dr. Kevin Currell is the Director of Science and Technical Development for the English Institute of Sport. He's one of the UK's leading authorities in sports nutrition. And, of course, Joe Pavey, MBE. She told me I had to put that bit in. <laughs> Long-distance runner, winner of gold medals at European and Commonwealth Championships, Team GB representative at five Olympic Games, I think, and we'll ask her about this later, um, aiming for her sixth Olympic Games in Tokyo. That will be a record for a track and field athlete if she does that. She's the author of This One Runs, which will be on sale at the end. And I just thought I'd share her PB, right? 2.28 for a marathon. Thirty fifty three for 10K. <laughs> well, we had some gasps then. 
and 14.39 for 5K. So if you've done a park run, 14.39. Let's give all of our panel this evening a little round of applause. Okay, the focus for this evening, we'll run through some themes through, throughout the night and we'll talk about some physiology, we'll talk about some training, we'll talk about some biomechanics, we'll talk about some psychology, we'll talk about some tech. And throughout the evening, all of our guests will be giving you their insight, recommendations, suggestions and experiences about some of the things that have worked and maybe some of the things that haven't. And hopefully you'll take some good ideas away with you. Now one of the things I'm really interested in is what happens to your body when you train and prepare for and race an endurance event. That could be a 10K, it could be a marathon, it could be an ultra marathon. So I thought we'd ask the person with the most experience of that, Joe. Um, when you've done an endurance event, a marathon or a 10K, what do you notice about the changes that you experience during a race, physically, mentally? Like, what happens to an elite athlete when they race? Well, I think like any runner, standing on that start line, I'm extremely nervous. And even though I've raced many times, I'm still nervous. So I try and sort of control my nerves. I'm starting to feel a bit like my heart rate's, you know, really racing. I'm trying to think about my breathing, but thinking all that adrenaline that's being released, hopefully that will fuel me to a better performance and so then the race kicks off and I'm trying to think about what pace I'm trying to run and that's particularly important for marathon running trying to get into that pace that I've determined I think I can try and maintain I mean that's an important thing that we all need to gauge from our training and all the physiology that we might have done to prepare for that and hopefully the first few miles if it's a marathon are going to feel comfortable and you're concentrating on keeping your running form relaxed but as the race goes on things start to feel more tough you start to feel more sort of body temperature going up sweating breathing becoming worse and you're trying to still maintain your running form obviously if you're doing a marathon you've been thinking about taking on board um, gels or sports drinks trying to keep the energy levels there but it does become harder and your legs I think particularly through marathon training and marathon racing but the legs become really heavy a bit sore you're getting that impact fatigue and and it's tough but it becomes like a battle of mind over body your body's screaming stop and your mind wants to continue and it's a lot of um how much you can push yourself through that and it does become a real battle at the end it becomes hard but it becomes a good challenge as well i think you've got to enjoy that challenge and of course um finishing a marathon in particular is a massive achievement and a massive life memory for everyone but but yeah it does become tough even if it's going well I think um, if you've got your pacing right you get a different experience and a little bit more controlled experience if you've got it completely wrong and I've definitely experienced both things happening. I'm quite relieved actually <laughs> right I'm quite relieved that Joe Pavey finds it hard <laughs> that's made me feel much better. I love it though. <laughs> yeah I mean you've, you've kind of spoken about lots of things you've spoken about some emotions and you've spoken about some physical things and those of you who run regularly you'll know that you experience those things in your own running and in your own racing just I'm happy that it also happens to the elite too um Joe you said sometimes you've got it wrong in in your races yeah. so in in a marathon for example can you can you share us a time when like that went wrong and how you knew it had gone wrong yeah I just felt that I 
didn't really get the performance I should have done when I did my first marathon in London because it was the biggest step ever as a woman's marathon race. Of course, it was my first marathon. Um, fortunately, I'd been able to be competitive on the track. So even though I'd done all the physiological testing at that stage, you know, I was really into trying to get it right. The physiologist calculated what pace I might be able to maintain. I was like, yeah, 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 you know. As soon as the gun went off, I just went for it. I just want to be competitive regardless of what I should be doing. And, of course, um, I ran the second half seven minutes slower than the first half. So I got a reasonable time, but I only just got away with it in that I was fairly delirious by the end, and I felt completely out of control. And then when I did New York later the same year, um, I only ran the same time, 228, but it was meant to be a much tougher course, a lot more hills, bridges to go over and everything. And I just felt that because I'd learnt my lesson, um, learnt the things about fueling as well and what to take on the route and just pacing myself, I was really strict. And it just felt a very much more controlled experience. And I thought, oh, actually, marathons don't have to... I literally, in London, spent 45, 50 minutes of literally just thinking that I don't even know if I know where, I'm, where I am anymore. But, um, yeah, I definitely felt like in the future I want to do more marathons so I can really... Um, learn even more and hopefully push myself further. It's fascinating, isn't it, as well, when you hear Joe say, and I only ran 228. <laughs> yeah, all right, then only 228, cruising. Um, but I'm secretly pleased you're delirious and out of control. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, um, okay, so thinking about those changes that, that Joe's described, you know, for, for those in the audience, how does that work from a, you know, the position of your your body, what actually are the demands on your body when you do an endurance event or a marathon? Yeah, I think the, the, there's a few things that Joe talked about in there that uh, are worth you start Obviously, you start to sweat, um, and some of you will sweat more than others. Um, I'm sure you'll all be aware of that. Just go to the gym and do the puddles or not that sit around people. Uh, actually, the fitter you are, the earlier you'll start to sweat um, is the response that you get. Uh, so someone like Joe, who's probably fitter than all of us, I think we can probably agree with that should start to sweat earlier in a run than the rest of us. Um, but the reason you do that is to get rid of all the heat that you produce. Um, you are producing energy whenever you're moving. Um, you're starting to burn that energy at a higher and higher rate, and a side effect of burning energy and producing energy is heat. Um, that's why in your, in your house you have your boiler and you burn gas or coal to create heat. Well, the same thing kind of happens in your body, and you've got to get rid of it. Um, and the best way of doing that is obviously through the skin, uh, and therefore you sweat to uh, produce that, and that's evaporated off the skin, cools the skin, and then you can hopefully keep your core temperature at bay. Although if Joe's going to attempt Tokyo, that could be interesting, particularly in a marathon in 30-odd degree heat. Um, that'll be fun. Um, the, uh, but if your core temperature gets too high, you get fatigued. Um, and you start to, to get tired, actually your brain, you, the, the, the sense of fatigue in your brain starts to go up. Um, your um, ability to um, take the fuel that you need to the muscles through blood, because actually the only the, that sweat comes from your bloodstream, um, starts to diminish. And then you get this weird situation where you can't actually keep sweating because you're too hot. Um, and that's really not a good situation. Uh, and the second area, you kind of talked about heavy legs. Um, and that's when you're, you're hitting the wall, probably the more uh, common term you would hear. And that, 
that's purely in your in your legs and your muscles you are constantly using fuel um, burning carbohydrate in particular called something called muscle glycogen which is the, the fuel tank within your muscle and when it's gone it's gone um, and that's when your legs start to feel heavy you can't move uh, along and they're the two massive determinants of uh, fatigue in an endurance event like um, like a marathon. And we'll talk more in, uh, as we go through the evening the specifics around, you know, Kevin mentioned the sense of fatigue goes up. And it, it kind of triggers in me, and it, and it will, I'm sure, in, in Josie, what do we mean by a sense of fatigue? And if you get a sense of fatigue, how do you respond? And can you override a sense of fatigue in training? And then utilize that in, in racing. So I thought, let's just, let's just dig into getting tired a bit more, shall we? Because it's something that if, if you're training for a marathon, or if you've done a marathon before, you are going to get tired at some point, right? And the ways in which you prepare for that tiredness, and then the ways in which you deal with that tiredness, determine whether you have a wonderful marathon experience, or a slightly painful supper fest, right? So we'll we'll dig into that a little bit more. Let's start with some biomechanics, Jessica. So, as you run, what happens biomechanically when you get a sense of fatigue? Well, the really interesting changes happen, and they're actually common amongst all runners. Um, is that you start taking shorter steps and increase your cadence. So we did a really interesting experiment with Run TV before and after the Oxford Half Marathon where we took the top runners and we did an assessment on them and then we grabbed them at the finish line and we said, right, jump, jump on again. We're going to do another assessment. We got them to run at the same speed as they ran at, at the beginning. At the end of the... At the end, I've got yeah. to check this. <laughs> right, so they did a half marathon. They did a half. And then you pitch in and go, can you just jump on this yep. and run a bit? We literally grabbed them off right. the end and said, right, get back on again. Run at the same speed as we your, your race pace was, even if you slowed down during the end of the race. And they all showed the same tendencies of running with an increased cadence, so a higher number of steps per minute, but with a reduced step length. So as you get tired, your body, your muscles don't have the power to get that good hip extension, that good, good step length. And so what you do instead is they take shorter, faster steps. So just remember that as you come to the end of that marathon and you're starting to get tired, is to think to yourself, okay, maintain that step length. Don't start taking small shuffling steps. Is that what it means when, when you, know, you know, I think it was, it was Kevin that said, like, you get heavy legs, you know, and you probably experienced it when you've been out training perhaps for a longer run when your legs feel like they're not really your own legs and maybe someone's taken your legs. Or the yep. other thing is, did somebody just put a fridge on my back? <laughs> and <laughs> you think, where have my legs gone? And often that results in, in a shorter stride length. Yeah. Is, is that what you're Yeah, or, or a shuffle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you see people who have really hit that wall at the end of the marathon who literally look like they're, they're shuffling along in those last few miles. And that's, that's why to maintain that pace, they're having to take really small little steps. Um, Josie, in terms of sense of fatigue, we're going to dig into this a little bit more later when we specifically talk around sports. Um, psychology and, and how you can wrestle through some of those tough moments in, in your training. But like what, does a, what does a sense of fatigue look like when you notice biomechanically things are starting to slide, perhaps physiologically 
to know that you're tapping on a, an empty door of energy. Like, what else happens? So, yeah, as your body fatigues, your brain does as well. Um, and when it really fatigues, we start using kind of the wrong parts of it to make decisions. So instead of using the automatic elements of just, yeah, we've done this many times over, we just keep going, or the great decision-making, the logical moments of, yeah, this is going to be tough. We knew it was tough. It's a marathon. It's supposed to be tough. I'll use all of my strategies. Instead, we use the emotional part of our brain. We feel really under threat. Our body feels like something's attacking us. We switch on that kind of fight or flight moment. We get really emotional and we take really bad decisions. Like you stop and want to have a cry, don't yep. you? And, yeah. I want to stop. I'm going to walk. This yeah. is a stupid idea. Why am I even doing this? Yeah. All of those thoughts start to go through our head. Is anybody running the London Marathon this year? Just so, so some of you are. You might be having some of those feelings now. <laughs> <laughs> Four weeks ago and you're having meltdowns. Don't worry. After tonight, we should be have superpowers uh, ready, ready to keep going. Um, Richard, in terms of, you know, again, we'll talk a little about about the, the, the tech and the wearable data, but like, are there any indicators from what we've heard so far from the panel from, a, from wearable tech that can delay that? Um, well, from, from a wearable tech point of view, it, it, the tech can't stop your body doing those things, but actually being aware of them and at what point different things kick in um, heart rate, it can measure maybe your lactate threshold, your cadence, there are so many data points that you can see in real time and quantify, um, so actually yeah, you can then imply strategies around that when you start seeing that data um, appearing either in the race or in training. So, so let's, let's think about training for a little bit because you know it, it strikes me actually that the preparation that you do really impacts your performance in, in many ways. Um, just so that you all feel amazing about how much training you're doing at the moment, let's talk to Joe about how much training <laughs> she used to do. <coughs> um, right, Joe, let's, let's put yourself in the position that, um, like most of us, you've been to five Olympics. Um, <laughs> what would a training program, when you're really in the thick of it, you know you are, you're really fit, you've got no injuries, you're eight weeks out from a major competition, it's all going swimmingly well and you are training at your peak. What does that look like? Yeah, I think whether it's been 5K, 10K or marathon that I've been focused on, I've definitely kept the same important components in there, but the training's been tailored specifically to the event. Um, you know, I've got the components like interval training, you know, intervals where I'm running a lot faster than the race pace, trying to work on that running economy and improving aerobic capacity, really getting um, the speed in the legs. Um, and then tempo running, where I'm running a good distance, um, and that will vary in length according to whether I'm doing 5K or up to marathon, trying to work on improving my ability to clear lactate and be able to sustain a good pace. And then obviously the long run, um, it would depend on whether I'm training for 5K or 10K, where that would only mean I'd probably run up to 90 minutes, whereas if I'm training for a marathon, I'll go up to two and a half hours, but I'll put more specific units into the long run. It's about what pace can I maintain for certain parts of it and things like that. But I think um, 
a lot of things that people need to think about with marathon training is people can be so scared of the distance that they're just concentrating on going out and trying to maintain being able to do a distance. Whereas actually, if you look at any real elite marathon runners, they're keeping all the elements in there, the speed work, the tempo run, because that's where you're really getting all the components that make you then find the marathon distance more comfortable. So I'm trying to keep all the components in there, but it's a lot to do with how the whole training mix fits together, because I think a lot of us know what training we should do to achieve our goals a lot of the times. It's getting it all together, and so to do that, I'm kind of working out according to what I'm aiming for, what are the most priority aspects of training, particularly for track running. It's always the interval sessions, and then with marathon running, the long run starts to become more important as well, but making sure I've got enough gap between those key sessions, but fitting in, feeding the other stuff in, but making sure it doesn't interfere with the real ultimate goal of the most priority sessions. So keeping so everything in there. You. So, you know, if we yeah. think about, like, what's, if you could say, and you're going to say it, but if you could <laughs> wrap your arm, I'm going to let you in to Joe Pavey's secret session mix, right? <laughs> you don't have to try these at home, but, you know, they're the ones that you look back on in your training endurance career, um, and you say, those were the ones that made the real difference to me. They turned me, you know, Olympic Games ready. Mm. What would what would those key sessions be? Give us some gory detail. Are you thinking about marathon or just five k, ten k? You choose. Yeah, because if right, I was yeah. if I was at a championships, obviously I've been there as a ten k or five k runner. That's been the mainstay of my career. But I think one of the things that I notice, which you can also relate to marathon is I'll get to a stage where I'm getting to peak fitness and I'll put in some what I call most like front-ended. I'll do some real quality work, like a 1,000 metres, um, 800, 600, 400, do them at a really good pace, but then add in a more of a tempo element, might be a 10 or 15-minute tempo run or six times three minutes unmeasured, and then put some sprint work in again at the end, things like that. All this in the same session, right? This yeah, isn't so Monday, Wednesday, <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> so I feel like those are the sort of sessions that really bring you to that edge, the fact that you're covering all things, but also reducing the injury risk by backing off and doing some tempo type work in it. But um, I'd say the crucial thing is the tempo run, um, the mixed interval session, but I also, whatever distance I've gone for, and this including marathon, just before I ran the New York Marathon, I was still down the track, um, sort of 10 days to a week before, doing a block of 400s, because that was really important for my running economy. And But then I coupled that with doing a tempo run of about 15 to 20 minutes afterwards. But I just need that um, leg turnover to really feel like the marathon pace is something I can just like almost tick off the miles. Um, so that's really important. I suppose um, when I was training for marathon, I was doing 100 to 120 miles a week, whereas um, when I'm track running, I'm making sure I'm getting my interval sessions right and building the rest around it. But I'd say um, I tended to try and get in good 10K shape about 12 weeks before, and then that 12-week really specific marathon build-up where I'd work on increasing the length of the long run, the tempo, and the um, interval sessions. But, but yeah, it's quite hard to say a typical week. You've got to listen to your body, have a really definite plan, but it's a flexible plan so that you avoid injury and you're not putting units of training in that's going to affect the important ones. 120 miles a week, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Big, long sessions as well. You know, something that, that putting the different elements of a training plan together within a single session. So particularly in marathon running, then you're asking yourself, 
difficult endurance questions at the back end of a session after having done a nasty front bit. Um, Kevin, how important are, you know, that Joe, Joe mentioned the specifics of some elements around things like interval training, tempo running, um, and long running. Like, could you just tell us a little bit more about what each of those is and why they're important in endurance events? Well, I think um, the first thing, whenever you're training, you're trying to you're almost trying to shock the body and keep it guessing. And when you do the same training, so if you just did long, slow runs, eventually it would become quite boring, but the body stopped adapting. Um, but in, in those low, long, slow runs, they really make you quite efficient, uh, and they get you used to using fuel. They'll get you used to feeling the sense of fatigue. Um, you'll get used to that uh, as you go through. If you delve right down into the muscle, um, what you start to see is like at a real molecular level, a cascade of events that leads to an increase in uh, something called the mitochondria, which is the engine of your muscle, produces the engine. So you start to produce more of them. Um, the enzymes that sit in them, which break down the fuel that you're going to use, you get more of them. Um, and you start to see these adaptations, you become more efficient as you run. The more high-end work, the interval work, where you're working at um, uh, pace, you're actually starting to get your body used to um, dealing with acid, the lactic acid, so the burn you feel when you're working harder. You're just getting the body more efficient at being able to use that uh, and cope with that. Um, and then right up, you start to see your uh, the amount of blood in your um, in your arteries and your veins increases, so the volume increases. More red blood cells they start to increase, so you can take more oxygen, and it um, that you can get oxygen to the muscles more effectively. You can get some of the waste you produce away from the muscles more effectively. Um, your heart gets stronger. Um, something called your VO2 max starts to increase. Um, just one measure of um, fitness. What is VO2 max? Just in case. Oh, you're going to test me now, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, that was the first question of my PhD Bible yeah. as well. I remember. <laughs> Sorry. It's taking me back. Um, essentially, it's the maximum rate you can use oxygen. Um, and it's the, the point of uh, fatigue um, that you would feel. If so normally you'd test that by going on a treadmill and you ramp and ramp and ramp the pace up. Um, until you can no longer go um, with, a, with a mask on. It sounds really fun. I'm sure Joe's done quite a few. I'm sure they're great fun. Um, any sports science students will have done them as well. Um, and therefore, it's, all, it's about your body's ability to use that oxygen. And when you're training for a marathon or a 10K or a, an endurance event, is there a priority around these things? So um, in marathon running, should I just be doing distance running, long, slow running, going out there all the time and simply repeating the stimulus that I'm going to have on race day, which is, you know, a long aerobic time? Or mm. should I be hammering out, what did you say, you did 10 400s on the track in about... Um, I normally do um, 16 where I do two blocks of eight, but um, you know, like what I was saying earlier, like um, you'll find the real elite top marathon runners are keeping all those components in. I think um, I was saying if you're scared of the marathon and you just concentrate on trying to think I'm going to last the distance, actually you could find the distance harder because you're always kind of running more at your maximum ability rather than having experience running a lot quicker than that. So therefore the marathon can start to feel more comfortable. 
And is it, is it important, um, Jessica, to... So let's say, biomechanically, we spoke about getting the heavy legs and shorter cadence. And, we, of course, if your stride length is shorter, you're not covering the same amount of ground with each of your strides. So you're slowing down, theoretically, unless you're increasing your cadence at the same time, right? So, so what is it, in, is there a particular type of training that's more suited to the preservation of your biomechanical form when running endurance events? Uh, that would certainly be doing the direct work in the intervals and the tempos where you are trying to maintain, certainly trying to maintain that speed. And Joe and, and Kevin have talking of, spoken about the importance of being efficient. And I'm sure that, you know, we chatted earlier, Joe, you say you have a certain race form um, and I'm sure that will have a really big hip extension, probably more of a midfoot strike running style, and you don't do that just when you're doing your slow run. So it's really important yeah, to, to, to mix up the training, and you talked a little bit also about injury rates and how important it is for you to adapt, and you have your three core sessions, but then in between that, she's, she's recovering. Um, so she's allowing her body to adapt. We're, we're incredible machines, um, and we adapt to the loads that are placed upon us. And the loading and the important work are done in those core sessions, but then your body needs to recover, because if you don't allow it to recover, it will just break down. Um, and that's when, that's when you become injured. And the injury rate for runners is, is incredibly yeah, high. Um, you know, in some papers reporting up to 74% of runners become injured every single year. Um, and a lot of that is because they don't allow time for the body to adapt. So that's really important as well, as you say, to mix, mix up the sessions. So I'm struggling here because Jo said she runs 120 miles a week. <laughs> and then Jessica says, but she's recovering. Yeah. Now I'm struggling to see how you can recover whilst running 120 miles a week. Joe, like, how does that work? How can, how, you must be running nearly 20 miles a day if you're having a rest day. Like yeah, I mean, I'm not doing those volumes when I'm training for the track, but I was when I was training for the marathon. But I probably was hitting those sort of miles when I um, was actually running the 10K in Osaka at the World Champs because I kind of went through the mode of trying to do that and see where it would take me on the track. Um, but I think it's because you get the training mix right, so you have the days where you're putting in the mileage, but you're making the effort to go on an off-road surface, but not one that's too challenging. So I'll make the effort to drive to like the canal, and it's dead flat, but it's all cinder, and I'll get the majority of my just mileage done there. And I'll work on um, just running how I feel as well. Like when I'm particularly sore, like I was um, chatting with Jess earlier, like I said, I'm, I'm almost running slightly more flat-footed, but when I'm really trying to run at a good pace, I'm more up on my toes and in my kind of race form. But if you ran miles and miles like that, you're putting more stresses on everything. So I kind of feel like as I get older, hopefully I can listen to my body more and know how much recovery I need. And even if I've got a planned hard session, maybe I have to delay it by a day. So it's um, getting the training done, but you've got the adaptation cycles. But of course, then they can't be too long either. If you only did one interval session or one hard pace type run a week, you would lose that adaptation, have to try and pick it up again. So it's getting the balance just right. And that can be different for everybody mm. according to, um, you know, everything like age, 
level of experience, how long you've been running, what your build-up's been like with injury. There's so many factors to take into account. How do you know? So those of you listening you know, to Joe here, you'll think, well, I don't run 120 miles a week, and that's mm. not going to happen, and perhaps I don't do all of those sessions, but you might do different types of running in your, in your weekly mix. How, does, how do the rest of us know what training is working? So what are the indicators when, you know, when training's working? Is there anything kind of mentally that we would pick up on or, or physically? I think mentally, I'd love to know in the audience how many people use a training diary. Brilliant. And how many of those are paper training diaries? Great. Sorry. But... <laughs> what how, how many of those are digital? <laughs> yeah. What I really love when I work with athletes is seeing people use training diaries straight off. I think that's fantastic because that really helps you keep track of what works for you, where you might be getting niggles, where you start to notice trends or patterns, like, yeah, if you're running on your toes too much, that might start to cause some issues. And all of those other elements. Am I being really moody? Am I being horrible to live with right now? Am I always hungry? Am I too tired? And those are the bits you can write much more in things like paper diaries to really see and start to track how your training is affecting everything else in your life as well as your running. And it gives you a much better idea of kind of how are me and my running getting on right now. You can change things if you need to. You can talk to your coach if you have one. But you can be a lot cleverer with your running when you're actually keeping really good track of it. I think that's a really nice question to ask yourself. How are me and my running getting on right now? You know, am I moody? Sometimes, yep. You know, am I hungry most of the time? Am I training for a marathon? Yes, but it's hardly surprising. Um, but in terms of physical preparation, you know, what is it that tells you your training is working or mm, your training isn't? I think one of the, the, the simple things is you'll, uh, your runs will start to feel easier. So you'll be running at a certain pace with your tech um, and it'll start to feel easier. But you'll look at the pace and you'll be doing whatever minute miling and you'll think, oh, that's easier. And you might look at your heart rate and it'll be lower than normal. And they're good signs that you're uh, starting to feel good. Or if you're doing the sort of the interval work and all of a sudden the times you were running at, all of a sudden they're they're easier or they're quicker without you even realising they're quicker. Um, I think those subtle signs, but where the key one physiologically, you'll start to see your heart rate lower for a given effort for a particular pace. And can you feel that? You know, so if I'm coaching runners, then sometimes I'll say, just wait, you know, just hang on, just wait. And at some point, you will have that breakthrough session. And it'll be that session that you look, you've recorded and you've looked down in your watch and you've gone, hang on. I ran so many seconds per mile quicker, or I ran faster. So the perhaps the plateau that you've been in, the little dip, suddenly, have you had experience of that when, when things have just clicked yeah. and you've broken through? Definitely, the, especially getting ready for track championships. And you feel like there's a point which you actually get there. You do a session that means, yes, I'm in shape. And from then on, you're able to sort of, you almost get to that point where you can maintain that level of ability and it's keeping it there and it, it takes quite a, a long long time to get there and sometimes um, even for people that aren't training track you can just feel it you feel the flow of running it feels more effortless than that and it takes a long time to get there and everyone will get there in the end where you just feel that 
flow. You feel like you've got there and everything's like um, moving in the right direction, not trying to compensate for little niggles and things like that. And um, I can kind of remember those times when that happens and it's quite um, a lot of hard work to get there. And when it clicks, it clicks and it's like, it almost feels effortless to keep it there as you spend so many months battling to get to that point. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Is yeah. that reassuring? For those <laughs> of you who are training for a marathon and you're thinking, I'm actually battling right now, yeah. Joe Pavey's just told you that it's going to click and it's all going to feel effortless. Yeah, you'll right? be fine. So, so take that with you. Um, okay, let's um, think a little bit more specifically. We've alluded so far to the importance of energy systems and training particularly energy systems around endurance. But actually, you know, those energy systems are supported by the fuel that we eat, our food and drink from day to day, and also a kind of in-race, pre-race, post-race nutrition. So I thought we'd explore that a little bit around endurance and some of the things that make a difference and some of the things that perhaps don't work. Um, so Joe, like, just imagine there's no one here, right? <laughs> when in the week before a race have you tried something from a, a food and nutrition point of view, and we don't need the detail, but it's gone wrong? Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's just, it's not worked out. Have you had yeah. experiences where you've thought, I know I need to fuel in this way, I know I need to do this, I'm gonna give this a go? And it's denied, it's gone wrong. Yeah, I think sometimes um, <coughs> too close to a race, you can try and be almost too healthy. If you, you know, there's a bit where sort of in your training blocks, you're focusing on all the fruit and vegetables and everything like that. But as it gets nearer to a race, um, you need to sometimes make food a bit plainer, thinking about a bit of fruit and veg. But, you know, the couple of days before a marathon, you're thinking about increasing your carbohydrates, a bit of protein, bit of carbs, but definitely I think there's been times where I've kept things a bit too healthy um, and the gut's gone through. But I mean, not to say I'm not having chocolate. I have a lot of chocolate the night before <laughs> for a race and I find that good because it's liquid fuel when it melts. I think. <laughs> so I definitely keep to that. But I think with marathon training, the last week you've just come off, you know, you're going into your taper. So you're still try trying to recover. So you're still thinking about protein and carbohydrates, whereas the last two or three days before you're increasing your carbohydrate intake and thinking about easily digestible carbs. And then the day before you're thinking about um, getting a good carbohydrate in, but not eating excessive amounts of plates of food the night before, because otherwise you're going to just get problems in the morning. But morning of the race, you need to have tried and tested things, definitely, like you're talking Is about. Is that something you, do, you yeah. did in your training? You're like, right, yeah, I know definitely. what I'm going to have, when I'm going to eat it. And yeah, you, you definitely. Yeah, no, I tend to keep it simple, like porridge, bit of banana, maybe toast and nut butter. Sometimes I have a little bit of tuna, with, but not mixed in, just because I like a bit of protein <laughs> for sustainable energy. And then I will snack on a sports bar just a little bit of it say in the last 90 minutes because I sometimes find I've been so nervous I can feel a bit depleted compared to if I was doing a training run but then I also tend to have a little bit of a gel literally more or less on the start line you know to just boost my energy a little bit but but then of course the racing strategy is really important for a marathon. Is that something well. that you think it, and will come on I'm going to ask Kevin specifically about why you know those foods and why those timings but like when you've eaten your tuna porridge and you've done <laughs> all of those nice <laughs> things, <laughs> um, 
did need, did you feel like you needed the gel for energy or did you need the gel for reassurance? It's probably a bit of both. I think once you <coughs> think you've found a routine that works for you, um, one thing I always find quite complicated is hydration. Of course, you don't want to drink loads and loads in the last 90 minutes. But um, when you say a thing's gone wrong, I remember warming up for a 3K at the um, Grand Prix final in Monaco, and I was like doing a few drills, and all I came was like sloshing. And I felt like, can we just have another couple hours until I wait until that's all gone away? Because I've obviously drunk far too much. And um, I think that's a difficult balance because it depends on the climatic conditions of the race, how far you're going to run. And I always feel like there's more to learn about how much fluid is optimal to take on board before you're like obviously then taking sips in the last hour. So that's important. But obviously with marathon, you need to practice your fueling on the run strategies because um, you need to get your body used to digesting as it runs. And then you've got to think about you need to be taking on gels and um, sports drink when you're feeling you don't need it, particularly when you're getting more distressed towards the end of the race, your body's going to be even less capable because even more blood's going to be taken away from the gastrointestinal system. So you need to have preempted that and tried to get fluid on board and gels on board. And then you need to probably have like 45 minutes between gels. And it, it's all a tailored individual thing as well. And it's so important to practice it. And I think if I did another marathon, I would want to get more advice on practicing that. Definitely, I felt like having done track for so many years, it was something that felt totally foreign to me is getting it right, actually running rather than just thinking about that start line. It's a whole different ball game, really. Five Olympics and you still need some help. <laughs> so if you're wondering, you need a little help with your sports nutrition, it's not surprising. Um, Kevin, this is your background. You know, it's, this, is, this, is, this is your specialism. So, you know, just tell us a little bit about why it's important and also, like, if it's important, what are the most important things that people should be considering and why should they be considering? Yeah, I think Joe touched on something important there, particularly for a marathon, is actually getting used to fueling during the race. Um, it, it's not like riding a bike where you can take on fuel whenever you want. It, it is different. Um, at the very least, is mechanically your stomach is bouncing up and down and uh, the blood flow to your stomach is reduced. So you have to get used to it. Uh, and as you, I think as you get used, as you get closer to race day, practicing those strategies, using the products that are actually on the course. Most marathons you do will be sponsored by a particular brand normally. Um, so trying to use the same products because they are all subtly different, um, even though they kind of do the same thing. Um, it, it's, it's getting used to using gels, taking the drinks. Um, on board, I always think, um, actually, in, in elite marathons, some of the funnier moments is actually seeing somebody try and grab a drink uh, at full pace. Uh, coordination and elite runners don't always seem to go together. And I used to spend a lot of time in triathlon, and they definitely didn't go together. Um, so I think it's a, a lot of practicing what you're uh, trying to do, um, because actually taking on board sufficient fuel during a marathon is definitely one of the determinants that's going to get you round either quicker or in less of a uh, distressed state um, at the end. It will kind of push that point you hit the wall later or even beyond the end of the race if you're lucky, if you really get it um, uh, right. And, and actually, when we talk about fuel, we're talking about one simple thing, sugar. Um, that's the fuel that you need and use during a race. Um, and, and 
therefore that becomes really How does important. that work, though? Because, like, if, like me, you've been watching the telly lately, there's this thing against sugar, isn't there? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, no. You know, we can't have sugar here, we mustn't have sugar there, and everybody's on low sugar, no sugar. But yet, what Kevin's saying is, well, actually, no, that's because when you exercise, you need sugar. Is that right? So what, how does it work around, what am I going to do, you know? How, how does that work? Um, well, I think we, when we talk about doing exercise, we're talking about doing a marathon. 26.2, I'll never forget the point two, um, miles. Um, it's not normal to do that <laughs> for anybody, let's be honest. So um, we're talking about something extreme that even two hours, 28 minutes is a long time um, to be exercising. For, for many of you, it'll be a lot longer. Um, depends how many. But um, the, it's, it's a long period of time without fuel. And, and your uh, carbohydrate stores in particular in your body are finite. There's only so much um, that's stored in either your muscles or your liver or the blood itself. Um, so you have to keep those topped up. What happens um, when you don't? Uh, what happens, well, anyone who's hit the wall will know what happens when you run out of fuel. Um, you start to get that sense of fatigue that we talked about earlier, your he legs get heavy. If it keeps going, you, you actually lose the ability to concentrate. So you get a very light-headed. Um, and if you kept going, eventually you'll keel over. But most people are sensible and they stop um, at some point. But miraculously, if you actually take on board something that's sugary, you can go again. And you can go again quite quickly. Because uh, it's a very, uh, basically, that's actually sensors for sugar in the mouth. Uh, and they will sense it's coming. Uh, so you'll put the gel in your mouth, they'll sense that the sugar's there, it tells your brain sugar's coming, and then eventually, uh, eventually it rocks up physiologically. Um, but I think, uh, do you need sugar to do a park run? No. <laughs> um, you definitely don't. Um, in fact, when I sort of see people sort of plodding around the streets and they've kind of got the, the bottles that go around your hand, I kind of think, oh, why? Um, unless they, then they generally don't look like the type of people who are running 20 miles. So um, I think we probably have over-egged the need. Um, you know, if you're just going to the gym to be healthy, you don't need a sports drink. That's not what it's there for. A sports drink is help you go faster or delay fatigue. If that's your purpose, they work. If your purpose is to go to the gym and lose weight, it's probably not the best strategy. Um. Do you, so, so I've you know, read a lot, and some of, some of you may have done, about the ability to actually, you know, train more fat adapted. So particularly in the ultra world, you know, there's, okay, if I train myself to utilize different fuel sources more effectively, actually I don't slow down, I can still use those, those fuel sources. And we've also read, you know, a lot about low carb, high fat, or kind of ketosis based diets. How does that work for marathon, running, endurance sports? Yeah. Well, first of all, apologies if I offend anyone, because diet is normally quite controversial. So there'll be maybe some people in the audience who really believe low fat is the way. That's fine. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you, so that's fine. We can agree to disagree. Because um, it, it seems to be quite an emotive topic at times. Um, actually, what you're trying to do is, is fuel for the work you're doing. Um, and and trying to uh, change the fuel around training and, and think, well, what's the purpose of what I'm trying to do? So 
I said, I'm going to go and do a long, steady run. Um, on a Sunday morning, I, one of the things I want to do is I want to adapt to the body's ability to use fat as a fuel. Therefore, there is sense in not having carbohydrate before that so that you are deliberately adapting the body. So you may run fasted. Um, and the science is that's probably caught the practice there because probably people, have, runners and, and cyclists, have been training fasted for um, a lot longer than probably any of us have been uh, alive. So uh, and the science is caught to suggest that that's a good strategy. However, if you want to go down the track and run fast, you need carbohydrate. Um, so um, normally you go to the track, you, um, you'll do an interval, then you'll feel that burn, you'll feel the lactic acid. We can only produce that if you have carbohydrate in the body. So you can, that's you metabolically, you can't produce it without carbohydrate. So, so you need that, and that'll maintain the intensity. So when you want to do good quality work, carbohydrate is your friend, um, just as it would be on race day. Um, but potentially, if you want to do longer, slower stuff, therefore, actually, what you're doing is periodizing your nutrition through the week, depending on what you're trying to do, rather than having it low carb or high carb or low fat or whatever other fancy fad is in the latest magazines. Um, you what you're trying to do is based it on what's what, what you're actually trying to do. And, and we've touched also, and Joe mentioned it, you know, around hydration. Um, and we see, you know, often reports of um, overhydration in, in some events and often, you know, recommendations to drink what, to me, sometimes seems like a somewhat excessive amount. Mm. Like I would end up in every single portaloo on course. <laughs> Um, if I was to drink, you know, a slug or ten of, of water or whatever every mile. Um, so, mm. you know, are there recommendations? What are the dangers yeah. uh, around hyponatremia, drinking? Yeah, I mean, hyponatremia is, when, uh, is, is generally what you see when people are overdrunk. Um, actually, what that means is that the amount of salt in your blood becomes lower and lower. Actually, that your brain starts to expand, and actually that could lead into a lethal end that keeps happening but um and, and there have been examples in in the research literature where people and listen to what i'm about to say and think about it people have increased their body weight during a marathon by eight to ten percent by the amount they've drunk so not only have they matched their sweat rate so they will have probably lost a number of kilos worth of sweat they've increased their body weight uh, and unsurprisingly end up in pretty bad state um and actually it's probably People like uh, uh, yourselves who, who might not do two hours 28 might take longer. Therefore, you've got a longer period of time to drink because probably more risk. Um, and uh, probably some of the early recommendations where the science was taken and interpreted into recommendations were a little bit ambitious of drinking constantly through marathons, essentially not losing any sweat, not losing any weight whatsoever to uh, fluid losses was probably a Bad, bad interpretation of the science at the time. Uh, and I think what we know now is almost drinking to thirst. Um, as you feel thirsty, we actually have, we have a mechanism that's built within us naturally to allow us to know when we need uh, to drink. Drinking to thirst. And quite often, if you actually get a fueling plan where you're thinking about gels and drinks on the course, they, they, a gel is still fluid. It might be... Um, concentrated there's still fluid in there because you're drinking that gives you fluid quite often your fueling plan actually naturally takes you to your fluid plan and i think it's only when it gets really hot 
Um, so it's probably not going to happen in the London Marathon. But you've really got to think about a real specific plan about fluid. Um, so w what about like just general nutrition? I get a lot of questions like this, uh, particularly this time of year, around is it all right to have a glass of wine on a Friday night? <laughs> you know, w is that going to distract from the, my preparations? You know, I'm going to ask that. Joe? Yeah. <laughs> like, when you're in training for the Olympics, do you go like, okay, you said you eat a bit of chocolate, but are you quite conscientious with your diet and alcohol? intake do you allow yourself well you know, you know i like red work? wine i love red wine so but <laughs> uh, great yeah. the first round of applause <laughs> all night comes because joe pavey has a glass of wine yeah. i suppose when it really comes to the crunch and i'm like you know a few weeks from the championship i don't really drink any alcohol but um before i had children i did so much of my training in south africa and it was cheaper to have a glass of wine than it was a coke or something so i always had a glass of red wine um every evening apart from if i had a track session the next day but it is just one glass and i think it helps relax and it's all in moderation but i do switch to not having any when it really really matters but i think um you know you know obviously eating disorders another topic altogether but you've got to eat enough to maintain what you're trying to do and um maybe i would have liked to have done better at certain you know things at times but i think the fact that i've kept going for a lot of years is because i've always eaten enough and really known the value of refueling everything so i've had so many different teammates that unfortunately have come into the team had one or two good years and then that's it you don't see them again because i've kept going for so many years i've seen that happen and so i think it's really important not to be restrictive but you need to have a healthy diet as far as you can have treats you know now and again on top but you've got to have the right nutrition to repair yourself from all the things that you're putting your body through with all the mileage and all the impact you need to repair your body to then keep moving on to reach the next level so that's really important but yeah it's having the balance you know you want to enjoy your life and I think that's why I've kept going a lot of years because I just love running and I think you want to find a way of in enjoying your running with having the balance mixing up your training running in beautiful places and letting your hair down a little bit at times as part of that balance as well as um focusing when you really need to i think it's that ability to really focus when it matters and um i, I think it was either kevin or, or josie who said earlier that sometimes when we're talking about that sense of fatigue what you eat can sometimes contribute to you feeling more or less tired. So if you haven't fueled correctly, that can really impact upon your ability to process where you are in the race and make sensible decisions because you're out of energy. Um, if we kind of move on to some of the focus around psychology, because what's coming in through all of this is that with better running and to improve your performance, there's not one single thing that's going to make a huge difference. Rather, it's a combination of effective things for you that will really help. And psychologically, for me, one of the things I see a lot with, with runners is they just don't look after their head enough. And they do all the training right, and they do 120 miles a week, and they they, they train hard and they focus on their nutrition and they rarely get injured because biomechanically they're really sound. And then it comes to race day and it all goes wrong. And it goes wrong just because their head 
isn't quite in the right place. So, you know, with your experience in, uh, of working through performance of mind with athletes around their, their uh, psychological preparation, like what are some of the key issues that you see in training and racing? I think the two for runners really come down to either lack of confidence or kind of too much anxiety. That's kind of the just getting to the start line and not feeling like you're an imposter, feeling like you shouldn't really be there, that it's, it's too much, you're going to get caught out, there's a real fear of failure that can come in. And the other side is actually mid-race of where people have dropped out, they've quit halfway through, they've gone to plan B halfway through because it wasn't working and then they've gone to plan C and they've got really frustrated with themselves that they've really set a goal that they've felt like they've given up halfway through the race. And those are the two when I tend to see people, either that just huge amount of anxiety on the start line or that they're getting to the race but actually it's all collapsing halfway through and that bit when you get energy depleted, our brain needs sugar and if we're not giving it any, it tends to kind of collapse in on itself it gets very emotional we make rubbish decisions and that's when we do the yeah i'm not doing this anymore joe have you ever had that in a race where in any of your races you've been you know five olympics and countless how however many other internationals over the last 25 probably 30 years now <laughs> yeah we're certainly um, selling it <laughs> <laughs> i think 30 years in international perhaps yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i'm very old yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, have you had times where you've experienced both of those? Because often we perceive, you know, elite athletes to be kind of indestructible, but these are often learned skills that we pick up over time. So if you look back at your kind of Olympic profile, did you suffer nerves and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I'm always nervous before race, but I try and um, channel the nerves in the right direction and. I think those early experiences competing when I was a teenager um, actually prepared me a lot for dealing with bigger championships because I was probably a lot more nervous when I was young. I remember almost just being actually sick with nerves. And when I look back now, that was really over the top and irrational because when you're only young, that feels so important to compete at the English school, which it is, but you blow it out of proportion and you just feel so much pressure and everything. So I have felt that I've gained experience over the years and I've actually found that um, what works for me is to be able to chat to teammates right up until the point where just a few moments before really like the one we're being led out onto the track or the start line to really like okay right you know focus on your breathing think right now all I've got to do is race but if I spend the whole like two hours when I've arrived at the location of the race just sort of introverted stressing about what I've got to do I'm worn out by the start line I don't need to go into that state of what maybe we call like readiness and too extreme sort of readiness for race it's just going to wear you out so it's getting that balance but I think during the race obviously I've had loads of really bad races over the years I mean if you compete for many years um it's part of the sport some go well and some are just horrendous and sometimes you are disappointed because you're expecting it was going to be a good race and things have gone wrong and things like that but I think when things start to feel hard I try and um sort of you know almost have a like a kind of mantra in my head like things like you know come on you can do it and try and focus on that and I always focused on my running form and I was really interested of what Jess was saying about how form can go because 
um, I do feel like I'm focusing on my foot plant and focusing not getting too tensed up. And I was really interested to hear her talk about the stride length because I don't think I was necessarily thinking like that. I'm more thinking about placing my feet right, keeping relaxed. So I'm definitely going to take even more notice of if I'm maintaining my stride length um, to keep the cadence going. And, and also, when you've got a long race like the marathons, you break it up into chunks. Um, a lot of people go to like 5K. I just prefer to keep to a simple mile splits and uh, I remember when I was running New York it almost felt like a game because I was felt like I was more in control and I was like right got to that one and I got to that one oh that was 10 oh that was 10 down oh right got 10 seconds to make up here for the next one and it becomes like I was just focusing on trying to keep it there and I was still surprised how much time I lost in Central Park at the end though that was like <laughs> I was really shocked I thought I was going to get a big PB and um, it just shows how the course can affect that as well but I think breaking it up and just also thinking about all the people that have helped you and how hard you've worked but how everyone else has worked hard to help you your family friends everyone that's worked with you and things like that and yeah, thoughts and like that will you on i think josie are those things that you know joe's had this career uh, of, of international athletics that most of us you know haven't had um are they things that can apply to us too, they're you know. I think they're ticking off. They're, they're all techniques that sports psychologists will work with athletes on. They, are, they can be really effective. So chunking and breaking your race down into much smaller, more manageable pieces. Is that, is that, so that, that has a word. That's a thing, and it's called? Chunking. Chunking. Yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> it, it's really good for, because 42 kilometres, 26 miles, feels huge. It is huge. But actually, if you, most people here probably run a park run, and we all know we can run a park run. So if you break it down into much smaller chunks, it's like, well, I can do that bit, and then I'll just get through to the end of that. So that's a great technique to use. The self-talk there is fantastic, and there's two ways you can split it. So you either do kind of instructional self-talk of giving yourself an instruction. So if you've got a coach on your shoulder, repeating the same thing over and over again for something that makes your technique a little bit better. So when you get to that marathon shuffle bit, what makes you bring your technique back up and you repeat it over and over again. And the other one you mentioned there is kind of motivational self-talk. So if you really know what your goal is or you know your why, why are you running that marathon? Finding something that's a little bit emotional, gets you in the tummy, can be really effective for keeping going. And the other one you mentioned about thinking about people, I've had some fabulous photos sent to me of people that have written 26 names down their arm. And they're 26 people that have helped them on their marathon journey, or they've sponsored them, or they've been really supportive at their running club. And when they start to struggle, they'll look down, and they can then dedicate that next mile to the person that helped them. And that can be so effective, because it gets your emotion. You're not going to stop and start walking when you're dedicating a mile to Gary, who sponsored you. You have to keep going. And it's just a really good way of taking you through until you get closer to the end. Depends how much Gary sponsored me for. <laughs> <laughs> and chunking just reminds me of a bad night out, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, <laughs> one of the things that you're, we're, we're, we're alluding to, and, and it's, it's like willpower. You know, and sometimes that willpower, you think to yourself, Oh, I'll deal with that. I'll deal with that when I get there. And some of the things that, that Josie suggested, you may have had a little go at in training and felt that doesn't work. 
So for me, I've spoken, you know, I've, I've kind of had conversations with Josie in the past and other elite athletes who said, oh yes, I like the canty. And I've tried canty, and I don't know if you've tried canty when you're running. I get to four, and then I can't do any more. I go one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And I just repeat one, two, three, four. But other runners really use canty. So I think what's important, and tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, is your mental armory, the strategies that you use, if you practice them and you filter them for what works for you, you can really develop strong things at the right times. Yeah, but they need to be personal to you. You need to practice them. And I, I normally suggest when I'm working with athletes, we develop four or five that we know really, really work and we've worked in training on them and that they get them. So for you, counting's not going to work. For other people, absolutely it's their thing and they'll count up to 100 and they'll count back down again. If they need to distract themselves in the last kind of few miles of a marathon, they may do it in another language because it takes them completely out of that kind of, this is what's going on right now and I need to distract myself. More elite athletes, like your focus guys, and they'll be really, I'm just keeping my head in this. It's just about the pace I'm doing. It might be something like a body check where they're running through their whole body. It's piece by piece of how is my body feeling right now? Where's my technique? Am I placing in the right way? But it's all personal to you and you build your toolkit. And I almost like you, when you see people with their gel belts in a marathon, it's almost like what have you got in your, your mental belt? What can you pull out when it gets tough? And we always advise it, it will get tough. Even if you're running incredibly fast, kind of around two hours, it's still going to have dark moments in there because you get energy depleted. It's a long time. If you expect it to get tough, it's easier to deal with. And then you pull out the, right, what have I got in my pockets to use? I'll try this. And the more you practice, the better they work in the race. And does that work just for, for you know, your form? We've spoken about form. Can you actually influence your running form when you're tired through how you're thinking? Yes, without a doubt. And so there's a huge body of evidence now to show that you can directly alter the way that you're running just by knowing that something's going wrong. Um, so it's easy in fatigue and simply step length and, and cadence, right? That's an easy one, counting. You can stress that. Think about keep extending that hip backwards. Am I suddenly landing on my heels? Am I getting a bit lazy now? Okay, sit upright. Is my towel is tilting itself forwards? Am I leaning over because I'm getting tired? Another classic pose that you see people. So knowledge, as you've said, is a very powerful thing. And if you know you have a tendency to do these things as you get tired, then thinking about them and mentally telling yourself, I can alter these, is a very powerful and a proven tool. We know we can do it. So when you, you kind of interpret those signals, how do, like, so how do you know when, you know when you start off and you think you look amazing, and you're running and you go, yeah, I'm looking sharp. And then you're at mile 22, and you might still think you look sort of sharp, but actually you look terrible. And everything has changed in your, the way you're running. How do you know that sort of thing? Like, is there a sensory feedback mechanism? Like, how do you know? You'd certainly be able to, to feel it. You can pretty much tell if you're running on your heels or on your, or on your toes, and if you're shuffling or if you've got a nice step length. 
Um, also, we've got the, <laughs> you know, the wearable devices, of course, as ties in with, with, with Richard. You've got things, um, applications on your, on your Garmin or on your running watch that will be able to tell you that you're doing these mm -hmm. things. There's a really nice feature now where um, the, you can measure how much you're bouncing up and down, which is effectively a really good sign of how efficiently you're running. So what you'll find is somebody with an unefficient gait pattern who's got a big braking force when they land with their foot really far ahead of their body will have a very bouncy gait pattern. Um, and, and we can measure that. Ideally, what you want to be doing is to be landing with your foot directly beneath your center of mass because that reduces that braking force, reduces the amount you're bouncing up and down, eventually makes you go forwards better and makes you a more efficient runner. So there are wearable devices out there that means you can measure these things as you're running now as well. We had a good chat uh, the other day about kind of you can test in a lab um, and I know kind of injury prevention and there are a lot of metrics that you can do, but then it's how do I apply that when I go outside? Um, and actually now the Garmin devices, can uh, we can measure your vertical oscillation, so that, that bounce, how much are you going up and down? And you can look at that data on your wrist as you're running or afterwards on, on kind of the app and the, the, the data that you collect in your training diary. And you can actually see at mile 20, that's where I fell apart. That's the, that's the point because you can see that data throughout your run and where did I break down? So you can kind of then start applying that in your training, your strength conditioning, kind of all the other aspects, how it all comes together. Um, you can set alerts on your watch, so cadence. Where's that trigger? Where, where am I slowing down? What, at what point is it unethical or my efficiency dropping off? And again, that from a mental point of view, as you've been saying, kind of the brain needs the sugar and the fuel. You're not thinking straight. Let the watch help you beat, vibrate, and go, oh, actually, trigger that memory to think about your posture, think about your cadence, and, and then apply something in, in your run. Um, so but is, that, is that something that you would consider to be you know, like a, a wearable breakthrough, I guess, that can really help training? Because there's a lot to think about there. You know, I'm like, okay, I've got I've to set my watch for the amount that I bounce, you know, I've got to set my watch to remind me for uh, a psychological trigger. Uh, I've got to set my watch to remind me to eat and drink something. You know, mm. like, are those the biggest trends in wearable tech at the moment? I think from the, from the, from the wearable tech point of view, it's, it's the measurement is, is now 24-7. You can wear it. It's a wearable. It's, I don't know how many of you remember um, your first GPS watch. I do when I was at uni many years ago and you used to put it on the windowsill or on top of the car to until it locked onto GPS and you usually left it at home because it took too long and you forgot about it. Um, but now they, they pick up straight away and so we were talking earlier and it's, it's not a sponsored plug but actually Joe doesn't wear one and we've got a competitive brand but there's four of us that wear Garmin. Um, they're all day everyday devices. You're looking at your heart rate, your rest and recovery, the physiological metrics can look at your resting heart rate how are you are you becoming ill are you overtraining? you can actually just get that data and it's in an easy to understand kind of format um, and it is how much you want to look at it it's some people want to pour over numbers meticulously analyze it some just literally want their mile splits and like you like and you said we were saying earlier about ticking off those miles and actually just going right what was my last pace? I'm 10 seconds up on my target pace. Okay, well, I'm 10 seconds behind. 
I'm going to use the next mile to make that up. Um, it's, it's, it's all about learning what the tech can do for you to help you achieve your goal. So uh, you may have seen you know, somebody who's, who's applied that thinking is the current world marathon record holder, Eliud Kipchoge. And he had a project called the Breaking Two Project. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, on the running track in Monza, where he tried to run under two hours for the marathon. He subsequently, I think, then went to Berlin and ran 2.01 um, for a marathon. Um, but there are a number of things that he did around how he trained and his personal setup that were definitely radically different from some of the things you know, I think we've, we've seen in the past. I don't know if we've got those slides available. I think we had some slides of, of, a, of treadmills in the past and, and kind of treadmills that Eliud Kipchoge used. Now let's have a look, there we go. So, has anybody still got one of these treadmills? Not this, these. <laughs> Doing them clay pots, don't you, those? Yeah, look at them, <laughs> look at the shoes. Right, so there they are on the, on the old treadmill. And now of course, tech has moved forward in such a way that we see Eliud Kipchoge in his setup, you know, an incredible treadmill having his O2 you know, his gas analyzed, and he's probably connected to blood and having everything monitored, and he's got very fancy shoes on. Um, so the tech innovations in running have really, really changed. Um, I think, is there one of the shoe as well? This is quite controversial. I didn't dig too much into it. But go reading around the Vaporfly and the kind of carbon insert that fits into that, and there's a point at which tech and, and running performance uh, on this huge incline, but at some point the, the legislation around performance in athletics will, will change. Like, from a wearable tech point of view, like, what do you think is, for a recreational runner, the most significant advantage you can gain now from wearable tech? And what do you think might be something in the future? Um, that's a difficult one. I think from kind of since I started running, um, and I'd say I'm definitely not on the elite scale at all, um, as a, I kind of put myself on that side of the audience most of the time, is actually the amount of data that there is now, that it's, it's recordable, and you can, uh, Elliot Kachogi there with his five gases and lactate threshold, a lot of these kind of high-end scientific devices uh, in a lab, actually now you can have on your wrist. And it's, it's you can see that data. Um, the one thing that we've got is lactate threshold. Um, there are certain metrics that a lot of really clever sports scientists are picking up in labs. So there are, are changes in your, your heartbeat and your, the timing of your heartbeat at your lactate threshold. So actually as you get fitter, you can then adjust your training plan based on your fitness level as it increases, as you're going through that progressive training. So when you start off on your plan kind of 16 weeks out, your tempo pace might be five minutes per kilometer. But actually halfway through your plan, a tempo pace should be four, four and a half minutes. You've improved. So your tempo, meet your, the paces you run at to keep that progression should be changing as well. So it's, it's probably more of the, the amount of data that you can actually get as a, a 
an immortal from the, the elite. You're not in a lab all the time. You're not having uh, your blood drawn as you're, you're doing your VO2 max test, lactate threshold. You can actually get that now out on the road in, in every single run you do. And, and Kevin, do, is there anything in sports nutrition that is a, you know, we could consider as a current innovation to help recreational athletes, you know, perhaps even go as, a, you know, as an elite athlete? Is there something that you think, okay, in terms of sports nutrition, this is absolutely groundbreaking right now. It might be a way of measuring something differently or mm. a, a new product blend of what is, is there anything there that's really groundbreaking? There's probably two things that come to mind. I think one, actually, um, within Breaking Two, they used a particular type of drink um, that was aimed to get. So the limitation how much sugar you can absorb is your intestine, how much can get across there. So anything they can do to change the composition, as they did with the drink used there, to get it across quicker and easier, um, could be a positive. And I think that'd be interesting, particularly for endurance events. Um, and the other one is actually Joe touched on it earlier. So is actually getting enough fuel. It's doing the basics really well. But if it was easy to do the basics really well, everyone would do it. So I think actually finding ways to make food easy, um, because food is actually quite hard. Um, what's good food, what's bad, what's healthy, what's not. I've actually got to cook it. So there's a whole behavioural aspect around food. So I think... Um, what do you I mean, make food easy? So, so if I... Would I... And uh, raise the question to you, like so, I could give you like a little kind of burger, right? And and if you <laughs> ate just that little burger, it would give you nutritionally everything you needed to perform in training and racing. And all you'd have to do is eat five of these little burger biscuits a day, right? But you wouldn't get the whole. I'm going to sit down with my friends and have a social meal. I'm going to try stuff that tastes different and I'm going to enjoy food for the different meaning of eating together. And then a glass of red wine with Joe. Like, <laughs> would you go for the, like, five times a day burger because it's really going to be food that's going to make me run well? Or are you going to go, mm, well, I quite enjoy <laughs> the food eating. Is, is that, what do you no, mean? No, so I will actually... Um, with more actually how can you make food more social how can you actually get all the enjoyment from food food isn't just about energy uh, or health there's a huge social element to food um, so actually how can we help runners make sure they've got enough fu enough fuel to do what they need to do um, and finding an easy way to do that so if it was measurement how could you actually measure how much energy you burn uh, whilst, you're, whilst you're running whilst you're running just day to day um, a lot of what's there at the minute is a little bit random number generation. Um, it's got quite a lot of error. So how can we make that more accurate? How can we make that then translate into the amount of food you eat and make that easy? Um, and, and make it uh, accessible for all? So at the moment, we make estimations on energy expenditure, yeah, I guess? Quite, yeah, we make but a lot of assumptions. Yeah. Is there a future where actually we could be more in tune with our energy expenditure based on sensors that we might eat? Well, it could be. Who knows? Uh, but I think a, a future where you knew how much you needed to eat um, could have huge value because it get the guesswork out of it. Um, and then a real simple level thing is like getting everyone cooking. Like cook the more actually, so I wouldn't go down the burger where you could eat that in a simple way it's like how can you actually cook your own food and if you start to do that and make that make that easy and accessible for everybody um, I think you'd 
perhaps there's huge gains in, in performance and health and uh, everything. So that almost don't make it too complicated. So we've covered you know, various issues this evening around psychology, around nutrition, around you know, training, um, around tech. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to ask some questions to the panel too. So I think we've got a couple of mics somewhere. So if you have questions for anyone in the panel, if you just want to pop your hand up, we'll get a mic to you. Um, and then you can ask your question and we'll spend some time doing this. So I think, yeah, there's a couple down there. Oh, it's going all the way along. That's nice. Hi. Um, every book I've read about running, everyone talks about never stretching enough. Um, how much stretching should we do, and and what you know, what is enough? Okay, do you want to? Shall I? Can I? Do you mind if Joe? Do you just go? Do you? Can I say the do you stretch question? Do you stretch? Yeah, I do. But I think um, you know, these days people do go for sort of active stretching as well. You see people, you know, at the top of their game like Mo Farah. When you see them getting ready to be for an event, they start doing stretching where they're dynamically stretching legs, you know, swinging legs back and forth. So you're trying to get the muscles ready for action. But there's also a time where stretching is part of recovery. And um, I always make sure I stretch after, bef obviously before training when I've done my warm-up, do a bit of stretching, a few drills and strides before I do my interval session. And then afterwards, after I've warmed down, I go through all my stretches again. And to try and almost create sort of longevity in sport as well. Before I go to bed, I quickly go through all my stretches. And sometimes you think, oh, is there any point? But you can literally do it quite quickly. And I think um, that also gets you to listen to your body. You can actually realize, oh, actually, that calf is tighter than that one. And you get a gauge of what feels tight and what doesn't. And um, that can be an important part of injury prevention. But, but you're right, so, you know, there is schools of thought where if you stretch too much, you're not actually getting the activation of the muscles. So it's getting, um, you know, active stretching going along before you compete, but also making sure you stretch to prevent injury, definitely. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd add to that. There's certainly benefits to it, and there's a lot. You know, when we see people in the clinic, you can identify aspects of their running style or their biomechanics that are being influenced by the fact that certain muscle groups is too tight. So I'm sure, you know, there's a, there'll be a group of people here in the audience who suffer from tight calves. There'll be others potentially who have tight hamstrings. And that, you know, will have an impact on the way that you are running. So as we've said, it, it is a benefit certainly to stretch them out so that it doesn't cause, cause the injuries in the long term. And you're right about certain people have different areas that, by the way, they biomechanically run. Like I have to work on keeping my quads um, stretched, but probably not so much my hamstrings as somebody else might be the other way around. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. if you're uh, if you're someone who runs on their toes, you're you're pretty guaranteed to have tight calves. So you want to work on <laughs> work on um, on stretching your calves. If you're someone who's got a bit of a, a tilted pelvis or leaning too forwards when you're running, then chances are you're overworking and tightening the hamstrings. And so your focus is going to be on looking at the hamstrings. So it's all you know the way that you run impacts the loading and the way that the muscles are working, which then is going to impact which aspects of you are tight. So it's understanding in each particular case where your weaknesses are and addressing those before it becomes too late and it does, does um, progress to an injury. Thank you for this uh, wonderful session. Uh, could you speak a little bit about the 74% who actually get injured and how we manage our injuries and recover? And 
deal with it when you yes. have to. Yes, so that, that paper was very much from people who started running, which admittedly is a very high proportion of people today. So things like the Park Run initiatives and the Couch to 5K are absolutely fantastic, but there is very much a tendency to do too much too soon. And as we've already said, the body adapts. Okay, so you load it. Um, you essentially cause micro damage to the muscles and joints and the tendons and things. Um, and that micro damage needs to repair itself. And it does that through rest and recovery. So it's really important to balance the harder sessions with the easier sessions to listen to your body. Um, and we have a, an interesting idea that well, when we talk to runners where there's that there's a certain injury threshold. Okay, we're all at risk of running injuries. Um, as I say, it's a a very high impact sport. You take 2,000 steps per mile, um, two and a half times your body weight goes through your, your muscles and things every on, on each step. Okay, So the way we think about it is that every person has a number of risk factors. Okay, And that can be to do with the way that you run, your flexibility, your strength, your control, um, but also things like the terrain that you run on, the shoes that you wear. Um, and each of these kind of adds up and takes you closer to this kind of theoretical injury threshold. So if you've got really poor strength, poor biomechanics, poor flexibility, but you only want to train to do your park run, then, then you're okay. You're probably going to get away with it. However, if you now suddenly want to increase your training and want to train to do a marathon or even a half marathon, then you're going to have to think about addressing these risk factors, improving your strength and control. Can you do a one-legged squat without your hip diving down, your heel coming off the ground, your knees falling inwards? If not, that's what you've got to, to control every time your foot hits the ground. Okay, So it's asking yourself the questions, what, am I, what do I want to achieve? Yes, I want to run a half marathon. Okay, in which case, I want to look at trying to do some, some strengthening work and some stretching work and to think about how much my, my knee's diving inwards as I'm running um, because otherwise with that training volume, it's probably going to push me over that threshold. And the other really important thing to think about is that you need to address and ask why, you know, people here are injured, why did I get that injury, okay? Don't just stop and rest for three or four weeks until the pain goes away and then start running again because you haven't, if you haven't addressed the underlying problems that caused the injury in the first place, then as soon as you start to run again, it will just come back. And no, I can't do one of those one-legged squat things. <laughs> yeah, we have a um, question here, a question over there. Did we have two mics? Can you see people perhaps mind touching them? Um, got a question on sports psychology. With the elite end of racing, um, it's more of a tactical um, environment. It's more thinking about race dynamics. It's chaos. It's very unpredictable. I mean, I'm sure, like Joe was saying earlier, she's quite nervous, and that's probably because there's an element of unpredictability there. In training, Often it's quite predictable in the sense that you're in control of how many reps you're doing, the intensity, um, the amount of training load. But how would you prepare for, let's say, Tokyo in 2020? How would you prepare for a very dynamic, very unpredictable and very chaotic environment? So I think there's two things there. 
the first is one of the first things we tell any athletes that we work with it's that you can't control the conditions but you can control how you respond to them so that puts you really in touch with whatever happens it's me that has the option to control what's going on and the second one is a technique we use a lot and it's something i'm sure every olympic paralympic athlete will be using when they go to tokyo which is called what if and you get down on paper every single thing you have any worries about and it's literally kind of a hit list of absolutely everything it can feel pretty scary um, I think I've had athletes with up to 34 35 things that they've really thought about that they're worried about their race but then they look at what can I do to prevent it happening so what can I do right now what can I put in place so that these things don't happen and then we look at the end of but if it happens what's my strategy because we know when the bad stuff happens, we start thinking emotionally. We don't think with the right part of our brain and everything goes haywire. But if we've planned something in advance, it's much easier just to follow through with that plan. So having that what if is really helpful because it means you feel more in control and more confident. Stuff won't happen because you planned for it, but you've got to plan if it does. And I would suggest anyone doing any marathon, that is a really good technique to use because it just puts you back in control. So doing lots of races that aren't big A races can be really helpful for that so that you get to practice stuff in a way that doesn't matter to you in the same way you're not putting that same pressure on. You get to practice lots of different ways of responding to things. My question is regarding the tech and the amount of data that you need. Um, and it is how far away are we that, we do, that I don't even need a coach anymore, that the data and the algorithms are so good that you can tell me when I need to train. And if that is not happening within the next app upgrade, what are the challenges? Uh, yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, it's already here. Um, <laughs> it's a, 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 a program called Garmin Coach uh, came out. Um, probably about six months ago. Um, it's, in, it's in early phases, um, so you can, it's currently only 5K uh, distance, um, but that is you, the, the AI and kind of the, there are real coaches behind it, um, so there are programs set out. It gives you a workout. It obviously learns physiologically from your workout. It knows what your heart rate was, what your pace was, um, and kind of all the other metrics that the device is collecting. And then it gives you that human input. So you, you kind of score how hard that workout was, that perceived exertion. Um, and that gives feedback into the, the system. And then it tells you whether you should be doing a different workout the next day, having a rest day. Um, and that's actually, it's here now. I, I noticed Flight is just ahead of that. Um. <laughs> Martin's not one of the coaches. <laughs> Yeah, just I, you know, I think it's coming, but there's, there, you know, there's a lot of refinement before we're anything like able to be more human with our AI and our machine learning. So machine learning is, is you know, one way of, uh, that the tech is really picking up. But actually, when you're genuinely coaching and you're really listening and responding, that takes some human qualities. You know, and the one way I think we'll stay ahead <laughs> as humans is if we focus on what makes us human. You know, we 
must always continue to focus on what makes us human. Otherwise, we will become uh, immersed in our text. Okay, we're probably, um, well, we are, we're out of time. Uh, So I think, look, I'd like to say a fantastic uh, thank you to our wonderful uh, panel, Kevin, Jessica, Joe Pavey, um, Josie and Richard. Thank you very much.